Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, if you believe in the integrity of the fierce independent press, that's a great reason to support us. If you don't care about that kind of stuff, but you just like listening to this podcast or any of our podcasts, that is a perfectly legitimate reason to support us as well. And it's really easy. Go to CanadaLandShow.com slash join or just click the link in the show notes. And this uh, podcast that you like, you might like it even more because you'll get an ad free version of it. It just takes a minute. Go do it. Andre Demise, contributing editor at McLean's and co-founder of Resistance Noir, podcasting network, brand new podcasting network. Joining me from Toronto. Welcome back, Andre. It's been too long. Yeah, it's been a long time. How you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm crashing, man. I just gave testimony before Parliament, and I'm uh, like, I've never been so amped and so bored at the same time. You might have to carry this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's fine. That's okay. I got energy for the two of us. Awesome. Okay, we're going to talk today about Mr. Brown goes to Ottawa, my virtual trip to Parliament. Yeah, how was it? Like I said, just the strangest thing. We're also going to talk about the Globe and Mail. They have criticized a man for not being black enough. Okay, Globe and Mail. <laughs> okay. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Adam O'Dell, Adrian Cabillio, Tracy Germa, Philip Cormier, Simone Blaine, Maxim Gertler Yaffe, Jonathan Warner, and Leah Watkiss. I support Canada Land because all organizations and news media outlets have implicit and institutional bias. 
I appreciate the work that Canada Land does to shine a light on those shadows and offer a different perspective. I also appreciate the investigative work that Canada Land has done, especially on Thunder Bay and Jaren's deep dive on We. I had heard murmurings about problems with their work for many years, but it was Canada Land who finally pulled back the curtain. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. Mr. Biddle. Much, Mr. Chair. Uh, I guess my, my first question is to Mr. Brown. Um, I found it unusual when I saw, I wasn't expected to be here until the, the last minute, but I found it unusual when I saw that a reporter was agreeing to testify at a committee. I've only seen it once in my five years, and it was Paul Wells who had firsthand experience leading a debate, and we were um, looking into a debates commission. What expertise are you providing? Journalists tell stories based on other people's information and sources that, um, and I respect that, that they can't be released, but what expertise are you actually bringing to the table beyond what you've you've reported based on other people's stories? Mr. Biddle, I'm here at the invitation of the committee of which you are a part of today. Uh, I have agreed to come here and share the reporting that myself and my colleagues have done, which others did not, over the past five years. Yeah, so Andre, I don't know what to tell you. I did a weird thing, and I went before you know uh, the finance committee to talk about the WE charity, and uh, mm -hmm. not everybody thought I should do it. There were journalists who were, who were uh, they seemed very upset at the notion. Did you catch any of that? I didn't catch the upset. I did hear that you had gone to testify with regards to the We Charity. Personally, I just, I don't understand what people are upset about. I just don't care. I don't. They've always struck me as, I'm going to put this in a really sensitive way. I don't listen to lanky white men talk about Africa ever. <laughs> I'm afraid. Personally, I just don't really have a heck of a lot of respect for what they do. Some of the stories that have come out about the way that they've done business, the way that it seems like they've taken advantage of young people that are looking for an entry into nonprofit work and into charity work. I've been singularly disgusted with the organization myself, so I, I don't really have any strong feelings about that. Andre, I think ultimately that is like an overdue conversation about just like what is the nature of this kind of international development work. And some people are already starting that. But as yeah. we see, you know, it's not just sort of like a philosophical difference about like, oh, we don't like the way they're doing that. I don't think it's unrelated to the things that we're finding out about this organization. You know, like I think that, yeah. the, that the problems that are built into the foundation, but I'm not there yet because I'm still like reporting it out. So that analysis stuff. Let me start with some petty grievances. David Aiken, journalist David Aiken, a lot of respect for David Aiken, Glenn McGregor, Althea Raj, great political journalist, Chris Selly. They all seem to agree that I was trying to understand where they're coming from. This is a terrible precedent being set by me going before Parliament. And I was like, what, is the, what, are, what do they mean? And it turns out what they mean is they don't want Parliament to haul journalists against their will in front of the government. And then we're sort of subordinate to the government. We have to, might have to give up our sources. That wasn't the situation at all. Uh, I voluntarily went there because they wanted me to just uh, tell them what I had reported. And part of what Canada Land supporters yeah. pay for is for me to spread our reporting as far as I can. And, and you know, it sounds good to me that legislators would know what we put on the record. It seemed to me that if you were subpoenaed to go there, that'd be one thing. And that's what struck me was that you decided to go to give a testimony. That doesn't really seem to 
be a bad precedent to me if you're going to voluntarily as a journalist go and talk about your experience with regards to this organization. If you had received a summons and then decided to go, that'd be one thing, but that didn't seem to be the case. So I just personally didn't see what the problem was. And frankly, I find that people are being a little bit too precious about this whole we charity in the first place. There was a lot of people that were upset that uh, the Trudeau family was brought into it, that it seems like uh, there was mudslinging and I'm just like, they don't need our help. They don't need, they don't need anyone's help. They've got enough help on their own. They've got enough people around them. Well, Andre, you know, these journalists who protested me going there, they were not saying this out of any kind of fealty to we or, or to Trudeau. They were saying it because they, they care about journalism and perhaps I wasn't summonsed, but okay. uh, the, the slippery slope, Andre, if I go voluntarily today, perhaps you will be summonsed tomorrow. Uh, it's a precedent that I'm setting and it's a bad one. That's what I ultimately was able to ascertain is the argument. And then I looked it up. Steve Pakin went before Parliament 10 years ago. Paul Wells went before Parliament three years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't recall hearing a mumbling word from any of these people that they were hurting journalism when they did that. And I checked with Pakin and he didn't hear anything either. I've never heard of any sort of bad precedent with regards to journalists going in front of Parliament ever. I didn't understand what the big deal was because I've, I've never heard it be declared that going in front of Parliament to deliver a testimony of your own volition is a bad thing to do. Until this happened, I'd never heard that before. So I was a little bit taken aback. And frankly, like I said, I think people are being a little bit too precious about the charity organization, about the Trudeau family. It kind of seemed to me like this was sort of a side avenue to make that criticism without actually making that criticism. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I think that they just, you know, I'm no Steve Pakin. I'm no Paul Wells. I think that they don't hold me in the same. I think it's personal. Right. And that's Andre. It's a reasonable position to not respect or like me. I just wish they'd say that, you know, uh, Jesse Brown's testimony. I don't like him. Yeah. I don't like hearing his name. If, I mean, shit, I don't like you. Yeah, say that. <laughs> say that. If Jesse enjoyed a sandwich today, that gives me displeasure. I would like yeah. bad things to happen to him. Just be honest with that. It's okay. You'll find lots of uh, support for that position. But don't act like you're trying to protect journalism with this bullshit. Yeah. I'm trying to report stories here. Like, you know, the interference from some of these organizations that, like, you know, some of them are doing some good stuff on it now. But, like, that's your contribution to this to come try to – anyhow, this is too granular. Andre, I just want to go through, like, this is just happening so quickly, and I hear you, a pox on all their houses, but I'm in the granular details of as this thing unspools, how it's getting reported out. And there's kind of a high-stakes game being played with the WE organization, I would say by the WE organization itself. Can I go through some of this stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. I mean, the big one today before committee was that uh, it turns out that all along, this almost billion-dollar deal was not with WE Charity. It was with this brand-new entity and they were explicit. They did this to limit their liability so that if the government gives them hundreds of millions of dollars and then, I don't know, let's say their charity goes bankrupt or something happens, they go insolvent and, you know, good luck getting the money back from this new organization. So, yeah, as far as I understood, it, it seemed like almost the uh, the whole shell company game, you know, the, uh, the holding company, the operating company. And, and as far as I was able to read, it seemed like they had created a charity arm, sort of an operating company to limit their liability in the case that things go aside. That's, that's just how it came across to me. And that's a fairly common corporate practice. I don't, it didn't seem very insidious, but the fact that the government gave money to this charity organization that has no track record, essentially it's a brand new company. If you want to think of it as a limit to liability, then you also have to think of it as something that's brand new. Would the government offer that kind of money to a brand new organization in any other context? I, I absolutely don't think so. But I think of the government giving money to a brand new, say, like a black owned organization in that kind of a context. Absolutely the fuck not. No way. Absolutely not. 
No, and there are many uh, volunteer and charity organizations that didn't even have the opportunity to benefit from this. You're right that that's a pretty common corporate thing to do. I don't know about charities, but, you know, I think you're right that we had every reason to do it. And the question goes to the government as to, like, seriously? Like, that's... Yeah, I don't put that on we because, like I said, I think it seems like a fairly smart move for a corporation to engage in. Uh, You're right. I I don't know what the history of... Charity or philanthropic organization. Listen, I wonder if we're going to hear from Justin Trudeau that he didn't know that because, listen to this, this is a clip of the prime minister way back when he was announcing this. Okay, listen to this. Uh, When our public servants uh, looked at uh, the potential partners, uh, only the WE WE, uh, organization had the capacity to deliver the ambitious program that young people need uh, for uh, this summer that is uh, so deeply impacted by COVID. So he just seemed to catch himself. It seems to me like he knew he wasn't doing the deal with We Charity and yeah. broadened it out. So I'm curious what his defense will be. You know, moving on, uh, it's great to see media looking into the property holdings of the Kilbergers. Mm-hmm. Van Mala Subramanian did a great extensive job at looking at um, the We organization's real estate, which is a separate affair from the Kilberger mm-hmm. family's uh, real estate holdings. So that's a great piece that I just think people should read in the post if they're trying to uh, stay on top of this. But I bring up this property stuff because, and I, I mentioned earlier, I think... I think they're playing a really high stakes game over at we with whatever crisis communications experts they're working with. Brian Lilly, who I rarely have anything nice to say about from the Toronto Sun, has at least been trying to report out stories about uh, this kind of weird labyrinth of property holdings. And he kind of it seemed like he had a good one. I still think it's a good story. But this is really interesting what happened to Brian Lilly. And and it's a cautionary tale here. So he had this uh, kind of a scoop, I think, that there was this 21 year old student at U of T who worked for we and bought a property for a million dollars yeah i saw that right and then he goes on to say that she was the daughter of their cfo victor lee so this is all just like what what happens next is we comes out with a statement saying we demand an apology from the toronto sun that is not victor lee's daughter this story yeah. is totally erroneous and uh, Lee is a very common Chinese surname. It's, an inc- it's one of the most common. Uh, and this is the you know evidence that the Toronto Sun's report is completely you know fraudulent and fake. I kind of found out a, b- a bit about what happened here. It was kind of understandable why Brian Lilly would think that Ming Zhe Li was Victor Lee's daughter. And it's not just because of the last name. She had the same address as Victor Lee. Right. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't. He's just like, oh, all people named Lee are father and and. I mean, I would assume not. I would assume that he'd have more to go on, especially if he's writing. I mean, you know, say what you want about the Sun, you wouldn't assume that they're going to just put out blatantly false or non-research information. Yeah, I would assume that at at times, but not in this case. Um, (laughs) And and it turns out that she is a relative of one of Victor Lee's close friends. It's still a very good story about this bizarre circumstance. But here's what happened behind the scenes. Brian Lilly was not as incompetent as you might think. He did get that information, and then he did go to we and say, is this Victor Lee's daughter? And they didn't answer him. They waited for him to publish and make the error. They allowed him to publish that, and then they immediately said, they put out their, their demand, you know, we want an apology, a full retraction, and they also had affidavits proving their case that had been signed months ago. And I thought, wow, there but for the grace of God, because it occurred to me that uh, when we don't get clear answers from them, is it because they don't have answers or the answers wouldn't be good for them? Or They're waiting for the punt, yeah. Because if Canada Land ever makes a mistake like that, it's like they set a trap. 
And then they use that one mistake to discredit everything you're saying and everything you're going to say. And that's actually like kind of a good strategy on their part. But I think it's completely uh, in bad faith. And that's what happened to Brian Lilly. And now they're set, you know, basically his credibility on the story has taken a big blow. Meanwhile, he's got interesting revelations. He's doing some research on them. Well, I would I would encourage people to read this story because, I mean, Brian Lilly has uh, he's written invective about some of the columns that I've written. One of them recently was a um, he thinks that because I encouraged people who are part of the Extinction Rebellion to read the Communist Manifesto, he thinks that I'm a Stalinist or something of that nature. And he wrote a column, which I mean, whatever. I don't I don't really care. The, the Sun wasn't sending their best when they sent him out to write that piece. But at the very least, the the story that he wrote was fairly detailed and it included some interesting revelations that makes me think I personally have never been comfortable like if I uh, go to the uh, like the grocery store or the LCBO and they ask hey would you like to put a dollar towards the We Foundation or whatever I would always say absolutely not are you kidding me no and this just cements my decision they they've been engaging in some sort of like PR chicanery and the fact that they can't be straightforward about who they are what they stand for about their financials they can't be straightforward about what it is that they've been putting their interns and young students through. If you can't be straightforward about that, then what do I not know about your operations overseas is my question. So yeah. I, I would never give them a dime out of my pocket. Absolutely never. And the idea that this organization has been getting these, these sole source contracts from the government, that's like, it doesn't reflect, I don't think, badly on, on we because I never thought highly of them in the first place. It ought to reflect badly on our federal government. You know what, Andre, like when we finally step back, when we once we know everything, I mean, they've been in our school system for years, thousands of school. I, I'm not going to go. OK, yeah, it's just it's happening. We're in the middle of it. And they're coming. You know, they, there was a, a couple of days there where they were conciliatory. They apologized for their systemic racism. They're going to reform the organization, return to their roots. Now they're on the offensive again. They've attacked Kate Bain from Charity Intelligence. A lot of people read my interview with her. She's an independent charity auditor. They used to trumpet their good grades with her organization. Now they're attacking her. And they've said uh, that she's obviously the go-to media source for negative, incorrect information. They're coming after her. And then even as they attack her for misinformation, they publish something that I think is at best incredibly misleading. They say, in the past 20 years, We Charity only filed for defamation with one publication, Canada Land, for publishing clearly erroneous materials. Andre, unless someone's about to burst into the office right now, serving me with the notice that we've been sued, there's no lawsuit. I guess they filed libel notices. Maybe that's what they're referring to. But uh, that puts uh, a chill or a stink on our stuff. Oh, Canada Land is getting sued by them. Uh, might happen tomorrow, might happen in 10 minutes. Hasn't happened yet. So, you know, that's what's going on here. Like, it is a fight to get facts. And meanwhile, there's something else happening behind the scenes. I don't know if you saw this, like, bizarre. I mean, the Post is doing some digging on the Kilbergers. Meanwhile, this big feature ran on the Kilbergers over the last weekend that read, Caring is cool. It was this fluffy profile of Mark and Craig. Did you see this thing? No. I, which one was this? I, I didn't see that. This was something like it was attributed to National Caring Post. is cool? What? Caring is cool. And it was just like there was no mention of the controversy of the scandal. It was just this like yeah. history of we that was just where, where bizarrely. Did that, where did that run? I didn't see it. That was uh, on the, the weekend National Post, I believe. Uh, oh, okay. I think that, that came out on Friday. Okay. And I want to read to you from this, okay? Mm -hmm. This was attributed. Nobody put their name on this, okay? This was attributed to National Post staff. Here's, uh, here's oh what I'll read God. to you. <laughs> Both are charismatic, but in different ways. On camera, Craig always seems to be moving. He does a shoulder waggle as he talks, which sometimes ripples upward into a head bobble, suggestive of bouncy informality. Mark 
is more stolid, always smiling, but mostly stationary. Wow, one brother appears to have blood circulating through his body. The other is possibly a cadaver. We don't know, and we can't say, otherwise we'll get sued. What the shit is that? I think I'm actually misreading it as like an actual, like there's a backstory to that. And if I wasn't immersed in this other thing, I would be trying to figure out, like people think that the way that powerful people get stories planted in the press is that there's somebody in the newsroom saying, you, you know, never criticize this person, attack this person. It doesn't happen like that. It only happens when there's like, you know, a rare occasion when somebody's like, I want a story in support of somebody for some reason. And then journalists are asked to write a piece of fluff and they say, I'm not putting my name on that. I think I'm misreading that as a fluffy piece. It almost reads like a piece of Swifty and satire. Like yeah. somebody at the post said like, oh, I've got to write something positive about the Kilbergers. I'll write something positive. All right. All right. <laughs> caring is cool. The story of the Kielbergers. I mean, it's just. Uh, yeah. All right. Caring is cool. Uh, at least one of them appears to have a heartbeat, but we can't say definitively. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I'm dying to know uh, who wrote that, how it got in there, who made that happen. Because obviously there's there's some kind of an effort happening behind the scenes to put that kind of story into the press. Uh, nobody pitched that at a regular weekly uh, or daily yeah, story meeting. Yeah. All right, that's it for now on this one. We'll keep people posted. We have stories breaking uh, at a pretty steady clip. We duly note things here, even when we are completely immersed in other matters. We duly note things that need to be duly noted. I just want to hear, this is a nice contrast with the prose that I read earlier from mm -hmm. the National Post. This is an obit for the lead singer of SNFU, legendary Canadian hardcore punk band, Chai Pig. And this is an obit that ran in the Globe and Mail. Uh, he died on July 16th at 57. This is by Jana Pruden. I'll read just a little bit of this. First, there was the music, heavy and wild, the band's name and acronym unspeakable to parents and still unprintable in this newspaper. And there was the scene, the kind of thing that thrilled youth and terrified adults in equal measure, with punks slamming into each other in mosh pits at the Spartans Men Club in Edmonton, or belly flopping off the balcony of Regina's Schnitzel House into the swirl of bodies below. On stage, he was wild and mischievous and glorious, spraying the audience with water, dumping bags of puffed wheat or popcorn, batting them with hot dogs. He performed as though he had been shot through with electricity, so lithe and free as he moved across the stage. At times, it seemed like he was flying. Andre, I, I was never an SNFU fan. I was I had my, my hardcore phase, mostly bad brains and, yeah. uh, and the like, but... Yeah. Uh, that made me want to go. Uh, that made me feel like I, I missed out on something. Never seeing SNFU. It's just. Yeah. I got into the punk scene later, like when I was in high school. Actually, as a matter of fact, one of my high school classmates went on to uh, become part of the band Fucked Up. Okay. Yeah. Mike Alichuk. He's, uh, he's, he's in the band. He was a, a classmate of mine back when I went to Martin Grove Collegiate. But I was late to the punk scene. Like, I, I think it was actually, it might have been Mike. Yeah, it was Mike that introduced me to Rage Against the Machine. And I liked Rage, but that wasn't really like like the the hardcore hardcore scene. It wasn't until I got to live in in Palm Beach, Florida, which was also like a little mini punk scene. My cousins introduced me to like a bunch of the local bands there and so on. So I felt like I caught on sort of late to the wave. And SNFU was one of those bands that unfortunately I didn't even catch on until my twenties. So kind of like you, I feel like I caught onto that whole wave fairly late. And yeah, it was it was really hard to hear that he had passed. That uh, that Kenshin had passed. Yeah, but it's nice to see him properly memorialized. It's yeah. nice to read nice writing. It's funny. Rage Against the Machine brought me to hip hop. It brought you to hardcore punk. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, the the crossover was intense. And, you know, it, it's uh, I was listening to like, oh, God, I was listening to Smashing Pumpkins just on like the recommendation for a friend. And I was like, what the fuck is this nonsense? <laughs> 
was like, that was a good question. Yeah, I was like, I don't go for this soft <laughs> shit. I was like, ah, oh, man, this is what rock music is. I oh, forget about all this. And then it was when I had gotten into like my uh, freshman uh, year of high school. That's when I got introduced into like the, the basics of the hardcore scene. And that was that was Rage Against the Machine. So it's interesting, the crossover, the way that happens. Duly noted. Andre, do you have something for us? A while back, uh, some friends and I had a WhatsApp conversation just about how awful that mainstream black news has gotten in the sense that it's it's become almost beholden to mainstream democratic interests so we were going to put together a podcast by ourselves and just like you know just have the the five of us get together and and chop it up and discuss different topics and because they're all fairly smart people and one of them came up with the idea well why don't we try to put together a podcast network and i was like that actually sounds like a really great idea so we started off with a like a, a, a main podcast where we discussed things like bourgeois black narratives, what's happening in the news um, to counter message some of the more insidious aspects. For example, like when Joe Biden went on The Breakfast Club and said that I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, like, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Mm-hmm. That got us so heated. that and, and there were people in black media, like black people in mainstream media that were co-signing it. And we were like, absolutely not. We're going to counter message that. So we, we put together our main podcast, but then we got other people. We got a film and TV podcast. We got like a, an everyday political podcast. Um, we have like an internationalist perspective based podcast. So we're putting together more podcasts right now as we speak. We're even looking at the possibility of a serialized podcast on black radical history. That is slave revolts, rebellions that have happened in Africa, all sorts of aspects of black radical history that you may not know about. And we called the entire network Resistance Noir. So that's uh, that's what we're coming out with. And our launch is going to be next week. Well, congratulations and good luck. It's a great thing to do. It's it's a fun, exciting thing to do. It's an overwhelming thing to do. You make commitments to get something out regularly. You got to stick to yeah. it. Um, you, but it, it's it's wonderful to see it happening. And uh, I will say that I have a uh, I have a respect for what you do and what other podcasters do on a level that I didn't before. Having to produce not only your own podcast, but make sure that everybody else's podcasts get out on time. That's that's a labor. That's a labor. Of <laughs> yeah. You feel me now. Yeah. So you don't like me, but at least there's some new respect. I'll take it. Everybody go listen. <laughs> I may not I may not like Jesse, but I respect him. <laughs> go listen to Resistance Noir. I'll be listening. All right. Thanks. Duly noted. Oh, I got one last one. I mean, we have to at least duly note uh, the Governor General, Julie Payette. Uh, holy what the smokes. fuck? Uh, uh, apparently, we've, we've got our own Amy Klobuchar. That's amazing. <laughs> CBC reports she's created a toxic climate of harassment and verbal abuse at Rideau Hall, sources allege. Like, yeah. uh, like uh, her whole staff went to CBC anonymously. She's been verbally harassing employees to the point where they've been reduced to tears or left the office altogether. Four members of her communications team departed during the pandemic period alone. And it's all like she berates them, uh, the accusations go. She berates them and cuts them down because the quality of their work is not up to snuff. Andre, what fucking work? What could be so important in the governor general's office that you're like berating your employees to the point of tears? What, like, what, what, what sort of like? I, I can't believe that you <laughs> had me misscheduled for this luncheon, and then you fling up a, a stapler at somebody's head. Get out of here! I, there's nothing. There's nothing that important happening in that office <laughs> that you have to reduce your staff to tears that they go cry in their cars. <sighs> Fucking break! I love it. I I love it. I love this image of the Queen's representative in Canada being this kind of like regal tyrant. It makes me think like was Adrian <laughs> Clarkson setting up her staff in like a human chess game? Because it's like, is that what the Governor General does? Oh my is gosh! Like, yeah, I'm imagining like uh, Michaela Jean setting up staff in like a, like a battle to the death, like a like a terror dome. 
and they, she just she just like she sets them up in a circle and just like snaps a pool cue in half and says, "All right, the last one to survive gets to be my intern." <laughs> That's what the governor general does. It's just protocol. It's just Canadian tradition. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. The Globe and Mail has a racism problem, and it's not what you might be used to when I say a racism problem. See, their problem is they don't know that a person's race is not measured by their political views. Now, that's something that I know many of you know, but apparently the Globe and Mail needs to still learn that lesson, and I'm happy to teach it to them. Over the weekend, the Globe published an article by a divisive journalist by the name of Dakshana Bhaskara Murti. And this article infers that a person's blackness is measured by his political views. The Globe's headlines for this article underscore the message that they want to send to me and to everyone else. Their headline assumed that because I am black, I am supposed to represent the will of all black people, which, by the way, if you didn't know, is impossible. They then changed their headline after receiving criticism for it to accuse me of anti-blackness. Yes, me, a black man, they wanted to call me anti-black. Now, how is that possible? What do they mean by that? Okay, that's Jamil Giovanni on his radio show or filling in for Evan Solomon. Andre, what'd you make of that? I thought it was self-pitying and weak, frankly. I used to think fairly highly of the guy. Even when he wrote his book, Why Young Men, which I, I reviewed for McLean's, I didn't like the book. I thought he was very wrong in many counts. I think that he didn't cite sources, that he put a lot of his own personal experiences and a lot of his personal prejudices and biases into that book. 
But I thought he came at it from a place of wanting to help people. And now I can see that's not the case. I can see that there's a lot of anger and self-hatred involved in his processing of what the pathologies are with black communities that he believes it's his moral obligation to fix. He's not coming from an unknown tradition. It's actually a fairly common one. It's the same kind of tradition that somebody like Clarence Thomas comes from. It's like the, the Protestant work ethic, that there's something inherently vice-ridden and sinful about the existence of black culture. And I think that his ideas of the subculture of violence, which in his book he calls the Hollywood gang subculture, whatever the fuck that means, the more he can do to call it out and publicize it, especially in white spaces, the more he's going to be able to embarrass black people into finally getting their shit together. This is not an unknown strain of thought. It's the pull up your pants aesthetic. It's the Bill Cosby whistle stop tour. It's all of that stuff that we've been dealing with for the last 50 or 60 years. And I'm pretty sick of it, which is why I've been so critical of it. Yeah. I mean, like he's got a position. He's not the only one with that position. I thought of that Bill Cosby, pick up your pants to the hip hop community. Like, you know, I might not agree with his position either, but let's be clear about something. Here's what he tweeted. Globe and Mail ran a headline about me today, essentially saying government hired a black man and that man is supposed to represent his entire race, but some black people don't like him. Okay. They've since changed it. And now the headline accuses me of anti-blackness. I couldn't make this up. Doesn't he have a point? Like, isn't he allowed to be wrong or to like have oh, like? Of course he's allowed to be wrong. But if you're going to spread misconceptions about black communities, people are going to call your shit. If you just, if you say something that is just blatantly wrong about people, then you don't get to speak over and above them. They get to speak for themselves. So I think he has it like, well, I'm a leader. I get to say what, how it is that I feel, but you don't get to speak over and above people without them getting a say in how they feel about what you're saying. But his point is that he doesn't speak for everybody. The global mail. So he's well, when right you say, about no, but when you say things like, okay, I don't know if you saw, he posted a link to an article that ran in the conversation a few months ago, but it was a chart and a graph that showed how like the length of the lifespan of people who are hip hop artists or involved in the hip hop art community versus other genres of music, you know, how long is their lifespan? And it was just the strangest setup graph. And uh, it was showing that like people who were involved in hip hop, what the average lifespan was expected to be of people in the industry, you know, in folk music and like jazz and blues music, it was like 70, 75 years and so forth. And hip hop was like somewhere in the forties, but it's also, Hip-hop is a genre that's only 40-odd years old to begin with. So what the fuck are you talking about? And the other one that, that really caught my eye was it showed the cause of early death for people in, in various genres of music. So in hard rock music or in like hardcore music, there were higher incidents of death due to accidents and suicide. And accidents would also include, for example, drug overdoses. In jazz and blues music, and in folk music, there was a higher incidence of heart disease, higher incidence of cancer. That's the reason that they had died. In hip-hop music, there was higher incidence of people dying due to homicide. I think it was something like 51% of people who died early died of homicide. Now, a couple of things. One, if you're a black person, especially a black male, that's in hip-hop music, you don't stop being a black male just because you've gotten into hip-hop music. So all the concomitant social factors that are going to prefigure your early death are going to follow you into that music industry. So is it that you're dying because of the culture that you're involved in? Or does it have something to do with you being a black male in America to begin with? Two, if we're to take that logic and that's true, wouldn't it also be true that if you are a folk singer, you're going to die of cancer? Hold on, hold the phones, hang on a second. So are you telling me that Woody fucking Guthrie 
is a genocide heir. We, he hasn't warned people that, hey, if you get involved into this music, you're going to die early of cancer. Why aren't we holding the folk singers accountable? It's just this misrepresentation of information that he does on purpose. And this is a Yale-educated human being that he, Andre, can't seem to, he, can't, Andre. he can't seem to read stats. He doesn't seem to have the, the necessary information to make these kinds of pronouncements, but he does anyway. And then he gets upset when people call him on it. Andre, yeah. you're so right and well-reasoned that it's boring. It's a boring <laughs> debate. It's it's a bull. I, I don't want to, like, we're not going to have that. This show's better than this debate of it does hip-hop make people die. Okay. Like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, and uh, it's a racist thing. I agree. It's like nobody ever holds, like, you know, when Nick Cave st- sings Stagger Lee, yeah. it does a, a huge song about murdering people. No one says, listen to Nick Cave. It's no one says a total racist. No one about it. Nobody Stagger says Lee's, anything. He's talking about shooting the guy that looked at his girl the wrong way. Like, what the fuck are we talking right. about? So I, I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. But that's not the point. The point is this. This is the original Globe and Mail headline. Yeah. Ontario hired a black community advocate, mm-hmm. but not all want him as their representative. Okay. That's a problematic headline, is it not? Uh, yeah, sure. I guess. Like he was supposed to be, first of all, he was not supposed to be, he was not there representing black people. He was, he was an opportunity advocate for the province of Ontario. Yeah which the Globe and Mail has misread, that's like, well, nice going, Doug Ford. You hired a black man who other black people don't agree with. And I'll tell you this, okay, there is not a major world event in the last hundred years Mm -hmm. that there have not been prominent Jewish voices on both sides of. I am really used to Jewish people being really wrong about things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jamil is allowed to be wrong and still, like, like, that's not... Maybe there's other reasons why he shouldn't have that role. You know what I'm saying? I don't really care that he has the role or not. I, I don't. I really don't. I mean, whoever gets hired in government gets hired in government. Does he have a right to have that position? Yeah, sure. I don't have a problem with him having the role. What I have a problem with is him having the role and just saying ridiculous shit in public. That's what I have a problem with. If you have that kind of a platform in that position, you at least owe it to yourself to know about the problem that you're making pronouncements about. And if you don't know, then shut the fuck up. You're allowed to be wrong, but as a representative of the provincial government, then you owe it to yourself to be as right as possible, even when you are wrong. And if your if your arguments are paper thin and fucking flimsy, and you're making these pronouncements about the black, you're saying that oh well, there's there's a spike in shootings in the black community because uh, uh, kids are getting together and talking shit on Instagram, and that's why they're mad at each other. Man, shut up. Here's my problem. Somebody that's as close, I'll say it's my brother, right? We are such close friends that we've taken each other as kin, right? So when I say my brother, I mean not necessarily by blood, but by kinship, right? He grew up in a completely different neighborhood than I did. You know, he had a completely different life than I had. The way that I grew up and the way that he grew up, even though we were both black and we both faced many of the same vicissitudes, he's going to face them differently because he occupies a different class position, all right? This is somebody that, you know, was never given opportunities in school, ran with uh, young people that later on went on to form gangs. Like some of the people that he grew up with, they're not doing like life bids. He has experience with the foster care system and was, was bounced around from home to home. And you know what? He came out doing fine. I'm not going to say that everybody's going to come out doing fine, but the one thing that he didn't do was turn around and hate himself or hate his community because of the experiences that he was put through. He understood that because race being a social construct and the construction and the prefigurement of the black racial identity is one that's oftentimes filtered through poverty, through trauma, and that systems replicate that poverty and trauma. And him having gone through it himself, he understands the way that system works. Jamil is not somebody who grew up with that. 
and the neighborhood that he grew up in, I know is not a bad neighborhood. Like it's, I would say like it's a middle-class neighborhood and he has an issue with his father not having been around for much of his life. He has an issue with the way that uh, what he calls Hollywood gang subculture sort of infecting the minds of young people and making them want to go out and like listen to hip hop music or carry guns or wear their pants or whatever the hell he has a problem with. But if you compare his life to my brother's life, and what he talks about black people going through, what my brother talks about black people going through are absolutely not the same thing. And they come to such wildly different conclusions. It tells me that what people are missing is that there is such a thing as class stratification inside of black communities. You can't have a black person who grew up in the middle class making these kinds of pronouncements about poorer black people trying to say, well, poverty is not a problem. The culture is a problem. Fuck you. You never experienced poverty. This is somebody who experienced poverty. Look at the different kinds of conclusions that he came to. Is anyone going to my brother and asking him for his opinions, asking him for policy solutions? Absolutely not. He's not somebody that gets to be part of the conversation, but Jamil, because he is black, gets to speak for all of the community's problems, all of the community's vicissitudes, gets to speak for all of the poorer black people and say, well, your experiences are not an excuse. You should be able to turn out like this because look at me. Man, get the fuck out of here. It's almost as if you're suggesting that Jamil's uh, ideology and message and the destructive impact on like tons of, of young black people yep. is more important than my beef with the Globe and Mail's headline writer. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. It, it was it was a very badly written headline. Like when I saw it, I did cringe. No, I, I <laughs> that's saw it, all I wanted. I saw Thank it, you. I cringed. But I'm but I'm saying the but the article, <laughs> the the issue inside of the article that people were speaking to, and there were many people interviewed, and they had a lot of smart things to say. Aquasio Wusubempo had many smart things to say. Uh, Ronaldo Walcott had many smart things to say. The problem that I had is that he took issue with the headline and he thought that he was being called not black enough. And no one has said anything about him not being black enough. The only thing that we've ever said is that his pronouncements about the community coming from his life experience, he doesn't get to make those pronouncements. That's all I'm saying. Andre. Yes. Thank you. No problem. Okay, that's your shortcuts for today. I'm going to take a nap. It's never been easier to support us. Get ad-free versions of our podcasts. Just click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. It's five bucks a month. It just goes right onto your podcatcher app. Do it. Email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. We're on Instagram at Show. Andre Demise, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Andre Demise, and you can find our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. The Patreon for it is patreon.com forward slash R-Z-N-W-A, and all the information about our podcasts will be there. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Listen, I'm consumed by a story that I'm, I'm really passionate about, but there are other things and maybe bigger things going on. And this week's episode of Commons convinced me that every one of the deaths in long-term care during the COVID pandemic in Canada was preventable. Go listen to Commons. Go listen to Commons. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Please support Canada Land. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. 
but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.